0: Congregation, I am concerned that we in the Western Church are very naive about the works of the devil. The Bible speaks very explicitly about this world in which we live as a terrain of spiritual warfare in which the devil wars against the plans and purposes of God, and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks about the devil as a fearful dragon who is raging, for he knows his time is short. and speaks about him as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. This, the prince of the devils, an invisible spirit seeking our damnation, is a very real presence in our world. And yet I do believe that here in the West, there is a great attempt of the devil to even lure the church into a kind of slumber when it comes to his workings. As we live in a world that has bought into the lie of atheist, secular materialism, in which the invisible realities and the spiritual realities of the Bible are denigrated, we can sometimes fall into that very pattern of thinking such that we enter into the affairs of even the church or our family and we don't recognize that the devil is seeking our destruction. Indeed, the destruction Of every soul in which he can bring down to hell, he will do that. Do we believe that the devil has an interest in us? Do we believe he has an interest in our families? Do we believe he has an interest even in this congregation? Do we believe that the devil is real? Well, I think that perhaps part of the problem is that reflecting upon this reality can be thoroughly discouraging. To consider that we have a deadly adversary that seeks our destruction, who's so much more powerful than we, it is the sort of thing that is, does not really make for edifying sermons, perhaps, we imagine. And yet where the Bible speaks about the devil, ought we not... So, to pay attention. But particularly in this way, that our faith and hope would be directed to he who will accomplish the victory over the devil, even the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one to whom we may look in this terrible spiritual warfare is our great commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus, who has all power and authority and dominion. And to that end, I'd like to direct us to a parable, a story with a spiritual meaning, which the Lord Jesus spoke in the days of his earthly ministry. It's a parable that, while short and simple, I believe sets before us some of the central realities of this spiritual enemy, and especially as it concerns the hearts of men and women under his control. To that end, let us consider this parable under the theme, the devil robbed, the devil robbed. And I'd like to direct you to three thoughts that we see from these two verses. And that is first the devil's palace, second, the devil's rival and third, the devil's loss. His palace, his rival and his loss. The occasion of this parable is very clear, is it not? There you have the Lord Jesus Christ teaching his disciples, teaching the crowds, and out of his lips pour such precious words of wisdom, truth, and life. He speaks about what it is to pray. He speaks about what it is to forgive. He speaks but so many different dimensions of his saving kingdom, a kingdom which is not of this world, for it operates according to a radically different principle, the fear and the love of God and the grace of God given freely unto sinners. But as ever, when Lord Jesus spoke, there were adversaries waiting to denigrate his ministry. Here you have in uh, this portion of uh, the narrative in verse 14, it says he was casting out a devil and it was dumb and it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake and the people wondered. Amazing, incredible. There you have a fallen angel, a great and terrible, powerful spirit possessing the soul and mind of this poor individual. The special way in which this devil seemed to have afflicted this poor individual was that he prevented him from communicating with others. He was voiceless, speechless, dumb, as the King James puts in, But Jesus Christ comes upon the scene. He sees this poor soul. He but speaks. The devil flees and there is liberty. Not only words of truth, but power manifest in sealing that truth with that great wondrous display. But the, de- but the enemies of Christ, they lunge at this opportunity in order to attack. You notice what they say. He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. They accused him of operating through the very kingdom of darkness, which he came to oppose. Beelzebub literally means the lord of the flies. It was the title given to the pagan god of the Philistines, but especially was a stand-in for the very prince of darkness himself, the devil, Satan. And so the Lord Jesus contends with these wicked enemies who would so attack his character. He refutes them in different ways, pointing out in verse 17 that the devil's kingdom cannot be opposed to itself, for every kingdom and house opposed to itself cannot stand. Likewise, he talks in verse 19 about how the very uh, sons of the Pharisees and scribes themselves, perhaps speaking about his own disciples who are of the same nation as themselves, also cast out devils. And so if they would attack what he was doing, then likewise they would call into question anyone who would cast out devils in the name of God. And he confronts them in verse 12. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. There's this confrontation. He is the king of heaven. He is God's chosen king. He is the very son of God and the Messiah. Of the highest, and he is not shy about declaring this fact that he has come on a mission to destroy the works of the devil. And it's in this context that the parable that we have before us comes a strange parable, one that is perhaps unlike any other that he spoke, short, terse, and to the point. It sets before us how it is that the devil is overcome. But before we would understand how the devil is overcome, it first sets before us what a fearful adversary this devil is. What a terrible opponent we have to do with. When a strong man, he says in verse 21, armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. Now, children, you know what a palace is, don't you? A palace is is a great house that's owned especially by a king or a queen. They have an amazing house with tall pillars and and many servants and in certain lands, maybe it would look like a great castle or a fortress. However, it is there's a palace here being. Spoken of, and it clearly is a palace that belongs to the devil. Now, what we're to learn from that is that there is a place which is called this palace where the devil has rule, he has control as a king has over his domain, he calls the shots. He is the boss of this place. Where is the palace of the devil? Well, you see, the palace of the devil is the heart of a sinner devoid of God's grace. This is spoken about in various parts of the Bible, but I think probably the the clear summary is found in Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 2, where uh, the apostle there speaking to those who were formerly not Christians and now have become Christians, what does he say there? In time past, ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Who is this prince? of the power of the air. Who is this terrible spirit that works in the non-Christians, those who have never known the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it is the devil, described elsewhere as the God of this world, because he, from the beginning, a liar and a murderer, plunge our whole race every man, woman, and child into his foul grip when he entered into that terrible league with Adam and Eve in the garden, tempting them to rebel against God, making them and all their descendants his slaves. And so you take this person, a person pictured here, and their heart, their soul, their will, their mind, everything that lives within it is under the lock and key of this grim master, the devil. It is his palace. He exercises control and ownership over the children of men. Now perhaps someone. Is here, and if if you be honest with yourself, you have to say that you are not converted, you are not a Christian, and you may object to this kind of description of yourself that you are under the control of Satan, his his reign and rule is over your heart and will. And yet, can you deny it? Can you deny? that you live in a way that is contrary to God's will? Can you deny that you live in ignorance and indifference to the living God? Can you deny that indeed you have been deceived into this terrible lie of Satan that life is about yourself, life is about pleasure, life is about what pleases yourself. It is not about God. And indeed, you're happy in that place, happy in that state. You carry on and you know that you have no need for God. Well, such are the marks and signs of someone for whom the devil has in his iron grip. You need not be a serial killer or Hitler or someone who's obviously wicked in the eyes of the world. This is referring to the spiritual power which the devil exerts. In order to bring respectable, good people, even those within the walls of a church, into everlasting destruction, indeed, we ought not to be ignorant of the fact that there are cases where the devil's power expresses itself in a vivid way. We are to be it is to be feared that many of the the cases that the the world calls a terrible mental illness such that people are locked away in, in danger to themselves and others, that, that often there is a spiritual influence of of demons at work. The devil is real. He manifests himself even in radically possessing people. We see around us the culture, the government, the entertainment. This nation is in the grip of the devil. More and more lawlessness, more and more attacks upon all that is pure, right, and holy. And it all owes to the fact that the devil has this reign over the hearts of people. You notice further that as you consider the picture that's set forth here, it's not only a place of his rule, but a place of his possessions. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods, his possessions, it says, are in peace. And what are are these possessions of, of which we speak? Well, I think they're everything that the person has in terms of the choices that he or she makes, in terms of the ability to think and reason, in terms of the desires of the heart, in terms of the emotions in terms of the relationships with others. Everything that makes a person what they are, everything that ought to be consecrated unto God as our true and reasonable service, here it is rather to the service of the wicked one. The devil cares about every part of our lives. Take anything that you have in terms of time, money, Anything that you may have in terms of the inner recesses of your mind, your imagination, your fantasies, your thoughts, the devil has an interest in it. He desires that it all be operating according to this anti-God, hatred of God principle, so that self is all, because where self is all, that is ultimately the service of the devil. So those are his goods, but it's also uh, this that we see as well. This is a place of peace, and perhaps this is the most haunting part of that first verse. It says, when a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. Here you have all of the strength. Of this strong man, all of his spiritual power and influence, which he deploys as a great, terrible spirit, he uses that. He uses all of his devices in order to ensure that there is peace within his realm. So, just as a great king would want all of his servants operating in harmony, no discord no internal confusion or conflict, so also the devil runs a tight ship. He would have all the thoughts of man, all the desires and affections, all of the relationships, all of the choices operating in tandem, operating in unison against God, against his will, against his purposes, operating towards the eternal destruction of the soul in which he has enslaved. And where it says that these things are at peace, the point is, and this is often the case, that the person who is so in the grip of the devil does not care, does not worry, does not mourn that they are in such a terrible state such that they are going to plunge headlong into the fires of hell upon their death such that they will perish under the judgment of God and be but the food for the devil and the rest of his fallen angels. There you have this terrible state. And have you not found this? Surely you've talked, Christian, to family members or neighbors who simply have no care for their souls. They busy themselves with all sorts of things. But ultimately, you have to look at them in the eye and say they're, they're basically at peace with their terrible fate. They do not busy themselves with, cons- with how it is they can save themselves from destruction. They're not worried about what will happen to them when they die. They don't care about the things of God. And really, the, basically, the only thing that can make them angry, the only thing that can really throw them into a rage, is where you would speak to them bluntly and candidly and ask them about these things. What will you do with Christ Christ? What will you do with this mighty king whom God has sent into the world to seek and to save that which is lost? What of his cross? What of his offers of forgiveness? What about his command to repent and believe? These things the devil will not allow in. And so where it speaks of his armor... It speaks about deploying everything that he can influence, all the thoughts, all of the affections, all the choices, to bring them as far as possible away from confronting their desperate condition. I think we ought to say that um, the devil's greatest delight, perhaps, is when he can drive people away from the preaching of the gospel and the worship of God and the company of Christians because people who really care about your soul will speak of Christ, and the devil does not want him spoken of. He doesn't want even one of his slaves to fall out of his grip. But perhaps the next best thing than driving them out of the influence of the gospel is to make them numb to its appeals, to so deceive people that they think that merely sitting under the preaching of the gospel is the same thing as receiving him. So they hear about Christ, and they hear about the gospel. They hear about what it is to be saved, and they think, well, if I'm sitting and hearing of these things, if I'm in the company of those who possess these things, then all must be well. And so indeed, the devil can deceive a great many people speaking peace, peace, where there is no peace peace. A fearful picture we have here of the devil's palace, a grim portrait indeed. And where we would see this, are we not persuaded that we are up against things that flesh and blood cannot even lay a finger to? How is it that we could lay a hand upon one of the devil's servants? How is it that we could drag even one soul away from that path of destruction, unto the kingdom of life, love, and liberty. Certainly I cannot and you cannot. The devil, he is more powerful than us. He is smarter than us. And left unto ourselves, there is simply no hope. But what we have in this parable is such a glorious picture about one who is stronger than the devil. Let's pass from considering the devil's palace to considering the devil's rival. Read again verse 21, but going into verse 22. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. First, I want to zero in on this individual who comes upon the scene—a strong man. Jesus here is clearly speaking about himself in this parable, and in a certain sense, there's this kind of. Um, this kind of even-handedness. There is one strong man, and I'm another strong man. But the clear implication is that where there is one who is stronger than all of the sons of men put together, here is one who is stronger still. Jesus Christ is the only one who can overpower the devil. He is the only one who can save the souls of men. He is the only one we must look to in our spiritual warfare. And really, that's uh, by it's already sort of implied in what he had said before. If I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. It would have been well if he had spoken of the arm of, the, of God, as indeed it often says in the Old Testament that God brought his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Or as it speaks about the very gospel message itself in Isaiah chapter 53, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? But here you have a picture of God, but lifting a finger, lifting a finger, and the devil's work being undone. And of course, in And this close connection, speaking about the finger of God and then speaking about himself as the strong man, I don't think it's out of place to speak about how this one who is stronger than the devil is indeed true God. Where we would see the very power that spoke this world into existence, the very power which sustains and governs it, we ought to recognize this is the very same power with which the Lord Jesus Christ has at his disposal. He is the one of whom the prophet spoke in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called the mighty God. Here is one who, though a man, though born of the virgin, though indeed was like unto us in all things sin excepted, Yet he is also the true son of God with all the infinite power of God at his disposal. It says elsewhere in um, Matthew, in the parallel account of this, that he casts out devils by the spirit of God. And indeed it's as the son of God, that Jesus Christ uses the power of the Holy Spirit to war against the devil to bring about his destruction and defeat. Indeed, that's ultimately what the, de- what the very first promise of grace that was delivered unto our parents, Adam and Eve, there in the Garden of Eden, when they were cast out of paradise. Children, what was that promise that was spoken in the hearing of our first parents? As God pronounced his judgment upon the devil who had deceived them through that serpent or snake, he said in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, And I will put enmity or hatred between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Here is one who is stronger than the devil. Here is one the champion of God's elect, who would crush the devil's skull, who would destroy all his works. As it said in 1 John chapter 3 verse 8, "For this purpose the son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil." In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. So interesting. In this connection, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same and that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Now, what are we to take from that? Why is it that it says in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14, that the devil has the power of death? Is it the case that the devil decides when people die or that he has uh, the, the power of death in in some direct way such that no one can die without his power? Well, I think rather the, the point here is that when the devil brought our whole uh, race under spiritual bondage, then death became his ally. If you think about it, We have such a few short years in this world in which to get right with God. So few years in order to discern if we are prepared to die. And when we die, that is it. Wherever the tree falls, there it lies. There is a finality to death and the devil delights in that brevity of time, that people waste their few years fritting away on things that do not matter when their very souls are hanging by a thread and about to pass into eternity. In that sense, we can say that death is on the devil's side, and in a sense, he has the power of death. But here we have one who it says in that very same verse that through death, through his own death, Jesus Christ... Might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. We must see, congregation, that Jesus Christ going to the cross was but no uh, defeat. It was nothing that was taken from him against his will. He had power to lay down his life, he laid down his life gladly, willingly in order to destroy the works of the devil and to bring about his people unto paradise, to restore them into the blessed state which we lost in the Garden of Eden when we walked with God in the cool of the day. Now with much more closeness and intimacy and glory and knowledge, we may behold him forevermore in heavenly places. And even now we may know God. But it's only where it comes from this strong man. Who else? can break the grip of the devil over a human heart? Who else can melt, help someone to see what they refuse to see? Who else can show them that they are enemies of their own soul when they are hell-bent on deceiving themselves and suppressing the truth in unrighteousness? Only the living Son of God. Reminded of that glorious miracle which he wrought early on in his ministry. Jesus came to a shore by boat and there was a man possessed by devils. They tried to chain him up, his friends, but he broke loose of those chains. And so he ran up to Jesus, bearing all the marks of having cut himself, showing himself to be no more than a wild animal living among the graves of the of the dead tormented and afflicted by the devils who were torturing his own soul he runs up to Jesus what does Jesus say he says come out from him and the devils they cry out with a loud voice what have I to do with thee Jesus thou son of the most high I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not for he said unto him Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. Well, Jesus asked them, what is your name? And he said, well, there's many of us. We are called legion. And they begged him, will you but cast us into those pigs? So Jesus says, very well, go into those pigs. And so at the word, those devils flee from that man. They fly into those pigs. They run off the cliff. They perish to their death. And everyone is astonished seeing that this man sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And here we have a picture of what Jesus does for every sinner whom he saves. He does not leave us in our terrible delusions. Instead, he brings us to ourself. He heals our minds through his blessed doctrine and through his mighty spirit. He brings us to see that we must sit at his feet, worship him and know him. But it's the only way it must come through him. He is the strong man where we are but weaklings, unable to save ourselves. He is the one who came to seek and to save that which is lost. In him I declare unto you today, Jesus Christ, the stronger than strong, the mighty man of war and valor, who is here to storm the gates of your heart and to bring you captive unto his glorious kingdom of salvation. This is the Jesus Christ whom we preach. But notice that we have in this parable not only the devil's palace and the devil's rival, we have also the devil's loss, the devil's crushing defeat. Is pictured here in this parable. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him. Isn't that an amazing thing? When Jesus Christ comes upon a heart that is enslaved to the devil. It could be for many years that someone has lived in peace. Peace, not given a care for anything that... It, that concerns their own soul, nothing that concerns God. And all of a sudden they come under the preaching of the gospel or they hear a word spoken or the Lord Jesus in some way knocks upon the door of their heart. Perhaps it's a piercing uh, note of conviction. The Lord Jesus comes with the strong sword of his word and his law and he brings great gashes into your heart showing that indeed you have sinned against the Most High God of Heaven. You have lived your whole life in a lie and delusion, separated from the God who is love and truth and joy. You have sinned against grace, you have sinned against light, and the Lord Jesus reminds you that cursed is everyone who continues not in all things written in the book of the law to do them. Through the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. All that the law speaks unto you, sinner, is but death and destruction left unto yourself. You will perish in your sins. But it's a precious thing where the Lord Jesus comes to you with that conviction, storming the gates of your heart, and suddenly it is no longer peace, peace. That is, within the devil's domain, suddenly there is a disturbance within the palace and thoughts begin to stir up such that things are not well, such that we are headed for destruction, except we have our salvation in Jesus Christ. And those first stirrings, they are are certainly accompanied with the preaching of the message of the gospel We're not left to look this way and that for where we must turn. We must look to the strong man. We must look to the champion. We must look to the Son of God. He who was crucified and rose from the dead in great glory. He is the one who comes before us and says that there is salvation in me, sinner. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. He has come to destroy the works of the devil including the enslavement upon your own heart. He has come to bring you liberty and knowledge of the true and living God. He comes before sinners and declares war upon the king of the palace, that grisly uh, spirit, the devil. He would not have him to reign any anymore over the sons of disobedience but rather he would convert these enemies of God unto the very sons of God through that glorious transformation and conversion, repentance, and faith. But not only does he come upon them, not only does Jesus Christ storm the gates of that heart, perhaps when the devil least expects it, when he thought that this person was long in his in his grip, long secure on the road to hell, Jesus comes upon them, yes, but also overpowers. As we see, but when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor. And so here are all of the, the defenses which the devil had that were formally used against Jesus Christ. Formally, where there was always the thoughts of, well, I'll think about that when I'm older. And all of a sudden, that doesn't work anymore. And the sinking thought comes, how long must I tempt the Lord God? And it used to be, well, those Christians, there are people who don't care for others. They're just stuck up and self-righteous. And then the thought comes, that what shall I do to be saved? And before, it used to be that these sins which, in, which I have in, in, in my grip, those things that I live for, I cannot possibly pars- part with them. I cannot possibly pars- part with the pleasures of sin in return for salvation in Jesus Christ. And then the word comes, what what will it profit a man if he have the whole world and lose his soul? So one by one, every armor and defense is snatched away from the devil. Jesus, he, he enters into the heart of this sinner. He goes through the perimeter, he goes into the main chamber, he kicks open the door of the very throne room and he unseats the devil. Jesus Christ will not share his glory with another. He is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He would have you all, sinner. He would have every bit of you. He would have to reign over everything in your life so that your whole life would be caught up with him. He wants you to be able to confess in truth. For me to live as Christ. For it's only when you can so confess that for you to die will be gain. A glorious victory, this, when all of the defenses which we, together cooperating with the devil, had put up in, in, in obstacles towards the Lord Jesus and his grace and gospel, they all come crumbling down as the walls of Jericho, and Jesus Christ, the greater than Joshua, storms the gates. And declares total victory. You see, congregation, to believe in the gospel is a sweet surrender. To trust in Jesus Christ is a great relief. It is not to have a strong man ruling over you who would destroy and, and enslave you. It is one who loves you, who cares for you. That is now the ruler of your heart. One who loves you more than you love yourself one who will not cause your heart to be uh, a, in service to the kingdom of darkness, but unto the kingdom of eternal life. So there's not only comes upon, but also overpowers. And third, we have this note as well. And when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. So here Jesus is pictured as a great warlord, as it were. He triumphs over the enemy. He pillages the, the devil for all of his ill-gotten gain. And he takes all of the riches which he has, which he has earned through conquest and he divides it up among his friends and servants. And what are we to take from that? We are to take from this congregation that when a sinner is saved, they are a blessing not only to Christ, who so rejoices over his great war prize, his people, but also unto the whole family of God. And is it not so that when you are truly saved, do you not become a blessing to those around you? Are you not such an encouragement to those in the family of God when you can speak of Christ, your great conqueror and King and Lord and Savior, when we can point one another to him continually as the great uh, protector and victor over the devil whenever we fall into sin? Is it not a wonderful thing to know even one other solid Christian who is receive the grace of Jesus Christ and can be one who builds up the brothers and sisters in the Lord. Think about what it is to have even one member of a family saved by grace. What is the difference between having no Christians in a family and having even a single Christian Well, the difference is this. Whereas before there was peace in that house, in the worst sense possible, a family for which the devil had it entirely in its grip, now there is one behind enemy lines who can speak the truth of Christ, who can pray, who can suddenly tap into that great spiritual reservoir of power, the Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom and gospel and can point even those sinners unto this same Savior. If you, Krishna, are in that circumstance, if you are one who is laboring for the souls of your fellow family members, children, spouse, parents, whatever it may be, do not give up hope. Do not give them over to the devil. And the picture here is that Jesus Christ, the strong man, he is in a great army. And all the people in his army, they gather strength as more and more cities and palaces fall under his sway. We should expect great victories. We should not give up on anyone while it is yet the day of grace. Let us design great things for the Lord God. Let us lay hold of our loved ones and our neighbors in prayer and let us bring them before the Lord Jesus. Let us know that wherever we have an occasion to speak of Christ and his salvation, that is another entering point in which the Lord Jesus may find himself enthroned in their hearts. It's a great thing to see how he divides his spoils. Jesus Christ indeed will not share his glory with others, but he will share the blessings which he has purchased by his cross. So generous and sweet is the Lord Christ. And so we see from this congregation that the picture uh, that is here about the devil's terrible power over the nations and over the hearts of men, it is rectified only in this. The stronger than the devil has presented himself as the conqueror of them and a conqueror of love at them. And so I ask you today, do you know this Christ? Has he yet stormed into your heart and ascended to its throne? Oh, may it be this day, sinner, may it be this day where you give up the fight, where you throw down your arms, where you throw down all of the different objections that you have leveled against Christ and you fall under his sweet sway and dominion and through him you may exercise dominion in his stead as his underservants and together we may say, greater is he who is in us and he who is in the world.